Hello, and a very warm welcome back to The Gold Podcast. I'm your host, Isabel O'Brien, Assistant Editor here at Gold, and I'm delighted to be back on the airwaves with my co-host, Jade Williams, Gold's Editorial Executive. Jade, how's it going? How have you been? Hello, been very well, thank you. It's been a while, hasn't it? It certainly has. We went off air in early August, and we are just coming back now, beginning of October, And it's been a busy month in pharma, I would say. A lot of big news stories to hit the headlines. Massively. I've been almost every time I check my phone, I've got notifications going off about new approvals. I think the main thing that's taken the headlines over the past two months really has been Medicare, though. The first 10 drugs, as I'm sure you're all aware, has been chosen for price negotiation under the Inflation Reduction Act. And this has affected companies like Pfizer, BMS, Roche. It's really hit everyone. Mm. Absolutely. That's the challenge, isn't it? And a lot of lawsuits under way we'll have to see how that situation unfolds but yeah absolutely that was a huge story another big story to hit the mainstream headlines of course was Wigovi it has had an astonishing couple of months an astonishing year really but that all really came to a head at the end of August where the drug passed the one billion mark in a singular quarter for sales so we'll have to see how that develops but very exciting news for Nova Nordisk I'm sure hugely but on to today What have we got coming up in today's episode? Well, we're kicking off the season super strong with a great conversation I had with Parveen Jaya, who is therapy area head for breast and gynecological cancers at AstraZeneca. Now, I actually met Parveen out and about. We crossed paths at a conference back in April in very sunny Barcelona, and we really hit it off, and I thought she would be perfect for the podcast. So I'm very excited to share this interview today, and it's going to be on the topic very important one of digital health. Let's get into it. So let's hear a little more about Parveen. She's a physician who's driven to develop high-performing medical teams that are strategic, collaborative and externally focused, all in the name of improving patient access to the best therapies. She's held several medical leadership roles, both within the NHS, where she practiced as a surgeon, but also within pharma, where she currently works in the oncology field. That's right, Parveen is an incredibly passionate and experienced figure in pharma, and she's a keen advocate of finding new ways to optimise healthcare and forge new partnerships. We cover all of this and more in our conversation about the future of digital health. So without further ado, let's listen in. So Parveen, welcome to the Gold Podcast. It is lovely to have you on. How are you doing today? I'm good, Isabel. I'm really excited to be here. It's been a long time coming, hasn't it, really? It has. We actually met on an escalator in Barcelona. We did. Uh, did. How (laughs) could I forget that meeting? (laughs) Yes, I caught Parveen at the Reuters Barcelona event back in April. Uh, She was speaking to some medical affairs topics there. And I caught her talk and I thought she would be a fantastic guest for the podcast. So over a glass of wine, we agreed to do it. Yes. Oh, God, we did have a glass of wine. We did. We did. (laughs) That makes it sound like we had more than one. It was was actually just the one. But yeah, it's great to have you on today and to talk about a topic as important and relevant as digital health. So there's no doubt that digital health is increasingly at the forefront of innovation in life sciences. It's capable of adding value across all aspects of the drug life cycle, from R&D to commercialization and beyond that, obviously, as well. But is the industry where it should be on its digital health journey? That's a question that I want us to sort of ponder 
That is the, the million dollar question, isn't it? Is where are we at and where do we want to go? Exactly. So to kick things off, Parveen, we always like to start with a bit of context. And it would be great if you could give our listeners a bit of an idea about why digital health is so important now. So the pandemic saw a huge surge mm. in digital health. But how has the adoption of digital health within healthcare systems exploded since the pandemic? So you're right, COVID was that sort of couple of years or three years that saw this huge expansion in technologies, a newer way of having to do things. And it was forced upon us. You know, most of us had face-to-face meetings, as you remember, and then we went literally completely into a world Mm. of virtual meetings. And MS Teams did very well that year, (laughs) as we know. As did Zoom. (laughs) As did Zoom. (laughs) But what we did see from the pandemic is that there was a huge rise in digital apps that were available, both for consumer purposes and also tailored to patients. And that actually there was a huge um, sort of accessibility and engagement with those apps as well. Hence, more came on the market. We know that when COVID arrived, um, there was about three to four million downloads a day that shot up massively within a year to about five million downloads a day. We also know that in terms of digital related apps, that in those couple of years, the amount of times a mental health was downloaded shot up about 200%. Even, as I'm sure most, um, not going to be sexist here, you know, but I'm sure most women who are listening may uh, align to this, but diet apps and weight loss apps rose by 1,200% in COVID and continued. And apps related to diabetic management, which is one of our national... um, disease burdens in the UK and across Europe rose by about 500%. So it shows that actually with this availability of digital apps that were there before COVID, right? Mm. We all had the app stores, you know, um, from various providers um, on our phones, but we really engaged with them during COVID and continued. And if you look at some of um, the ways that technology has come in, we have gone from the likes of sort of conventional AI, you know, my Siri watch mm-hmm. at the minute, or Alexa, that's all conventional AI. You know, it responds to a prompt, whereas now we have generative AI. You know, we've got the generations of ChatGBT. Yes, it's a very um, smart chat box, you know, but you can use it for a lot more functionality. But we can get content created. We can get image, text, videos created. All of that has really helped refine um, digital healthcare. But are we there? Not yet. Not yet at all. Not yet. Well, yeah, it's really interesting what you say there about the fact that all this stuff was available already. Um, It wasn't a case of people rushing to make these apps because the pandemic happened. They were available. People just didn't realize they had the appetite for them. And I think ChatGPT is very similar. We didn't know we needed it, but now it's coming up. You're like, wow, that's useful for certain things. It's very useful. And I think the new um, sort of search engines, the co-pilots that they've, you know, Microsoft have coined with Bing AI and um, Edge, I think that is a very powerful technology. Um, I'm sure Google will be bringing one out soon and other providers. I'm not saying go and download all of this stuff. But that has enabled us to think of our working patterns and what we're trying to achieve in a more smarter way. You know, if you can go on a generative AI tool 
to be able to create content that can literally search multiple engines and bring it back to a refined content, that's very powerful stuff rather than people having to spend months and months doing literature searches. I'm not saying that is um, going to go away. There is a need for that as well, but it's just being able to be abreast of what is happening and seeing actually how can we utilize it for what we're trying to do. Yeah, it's about finding a partner, mm -hmm. I think, with this technology. And there really is the potential for digital health not to go anywhere if we don't have strategies around it to make sure that it's really successful. I think you're, yeah, you're right. Unless we have a strategy, it's really hard to define what digital health means and mm. what it can achieve because mm. you always want the tactics to align to your strategy that's what's, what I'm always telling my teams how does your tactics align to your strategy and how does that have any impactable measurables have you defined that but with the way that the digital health technology is sort of the market value of it we know back in 2022 that market value was about 200 billion dollars right that is expected to rise by 18 20 percent by 2030 you know so there's a lot of hope in that this is not just um, a flash in the pan. This is here to stay. And we know that a lot of governments and international bodies across the world are looking at this because they've recognized that with this engagement during pandemic and with the cr increasing prevalence of chronic diseases, there has to be a smarter way to engage with patients and also to deliver that care rather than your routine clinic face-to-face -face engagements and really powering the patient, patient engagement, patient empowerment, and getting them at really at the center of the care is what a lot of these strategies are based around. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what will help make sure that digital strategy, one, is developed and grows and is sort of integrated into the fabric of care. And I think all over the world, governments, bodies are considering this. And there are a number of digital health strategies that are either yeah. coming out now or have existed previously and are perhaps are being updated. For you, what are some of those leading digital health strategies? And, you know, how, how are they actually enabling this future of digital health? So there's a few strategies um, or policies that have been created. Back in 2005, the World Health Organization, through its World Health Assembly, started looking at this and said, OK, with its member states, how do we create a long term strategic solution involving healthcare that is based on a digital platform? How do we do that? They then went even further and said, OK, gave more direction to the countries and said, OK, how do we create a consistent e-health strategy that is aligned to your country's needs, but also mindful of the sort of um, resources that you have? So who was all, all over this back in 2005? Mm -hmm. But it took a while for that to really come through to the fabrics um, and through the individual member states and then translated back to the key decision makers or key people who would implement such a strategy in a market level or even in a region level. Um, because it, back in 2005, common language wasn't digital. We all had smartphones and we thought that was good enough. Mm -hmm. So that was the main point, at which I think, you know, it, renowned international bodies really started looking at this. Sort of starting point, the catalyst. Yeah, the, what, yeah catalyst is a lovely word. They were the catalyst. <laughs> <laughs> they also recognized that what they had put out there maybe wasn't directive enough. So they then went back and tried to develop, you know, principles, guidance documents to give its member states to then create their own strategies. 
in Europe back in 2019, there was a project that kicked off, which was called Digital Health Europe. And that project was literally designed to help Europe meet three of its main priorities. And these three priorities have seemed to be the red thread that seems to be in the US digital strategy, in the UK strategy, even though the UK strategy doesn't seem as articulate as maybe the US. Interesting. Interesting. It's another policy paper. <laughs> Please go and read it. <laughs> um, so yes, going back to digital um, health Europe, they had three main priorities. And as I said, it was the red thread. One is access for people to their data and to be able to share it across borders. Mm -hmm. A second point was being able to have better data to do research, to prevent diseases, um, and also to provide a sort of personalized healthcare. And the third pillar was digital tools for empowerment of patients and clinicians. Mm -hmm. Um, broad category but yeah a very broad category um and offering that patient-centered approach and these were broad i think for a deliberate reason because there's a number of ways that that is your broad um strategic imperative as we like to call them in pharma <laughs> um and underneath would sit a number of um other items that each sort of market could then go and uh, put in sort of to localize for their market nuances so i think it, it was deliberate and you know, they were faced with saying that, okay, we have these three pillars. We now need to really put a force behind it, some framework, some budgets behind it to really um, push forward these initiatives. So that was the European way. US, similar strategy. They've got a, a digital strategy again. They're a bit more granular in that one of the main buckets is patient-facing applications patient reported outcomes, how do we um, have patients exchanging information between clinicians and using telemedicine more or remote monitoring more. They've also started looking at artificial intelligence for diagnostic and predictive purposes. And another way is for them workflow optimization. And the red thread for that is having platforms and aggregations of robust data to have real world data evidence created. So that links in with what the European teams were trying to achieve. And going back to the lovely UK, as we said, there was a policy paper produced in 2022, I think in June 2022. I'm sure a lot of you read it. <laughs> and that was our plan for digital and health and social care. And they combined both aspects, digital health and social care together because of where the ministerial duties that, that sits under. And again, it had a preventative element. So trying to prevent diseases from happening in the first place, personalizing healthcare, reducing um, healthcare inequalities and putting patients at the center of um, their treatments and also trying to create more robust data sets to be able to do um, more preventative medicine and also telemedicine. Hmm. So they, they had that link. Unfortunately, how many of us knew of all of these policies? I'm equally culpable, you know, until I knew in back in April that I was going to come and chat to you about this. Um, did I know this much? No, I went and had to explore. It's like, let me understand what is the vision that we are trying to align to because our internal digital health strategy needs to be meeting our stakeholders mm -hmm. and our key stakeholders is the healthcare market that we play in. What do you think is going wrong? Well, lost, well, let's put it in a positive spin. <laughs> what, what, how do you think it could be improved, maybe? 
also, I think what is positive is that we have a lot of passionate people who are driving towards the same objective of trying to make um, patients at the center of their care and also getting um, it delivered in a more efficient, um, effective manner. I think what we're struggling with, and this is, you know, common across all industry partners is understanding how do we create that strategy what is it that we're trying to achieve and what skill sets do we need to achieve that and then also how do we prove or analyze our success and how do we scale up and like I alluded to do we even know the strategy of our healthcare system that we're trying to work within to be able to align ours to theirs to show that impact that's kind of what I mean. I mean, do you think there's anything that these policymakers could be doing differently to get this message out to companies so they're completely aware, so everyone is on that same page? A lot of companies do have um, policy departments who are well abreast of the changing environment um, and they do a great job. I think it's the old age issue, unfortunately, that internally, sometimes the way that departments are set up, we operate in a very siloed fashion I'm not saying that's um, common in one place I think that's an unfortunate situation that is occurring in most workplaces we are creatures of habit we like being with in the same function with similar sort of um, skill sets we have our own defined role this is my role and sometimes we have to step out of that box or that function and saying okay for us to achieve what we want to achieve, who do I need to partner with? Who will have that knowledge? You need to take a few steps back even and work out what are the right questions? What questions do I need to ask? Then who do I need to invite? Who will have that those answers? And how do we then partner to achieve what we're trying to achieve overall? Not just for our individual companies, but for patient health in general. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, we've touched there on individual pharma companies and digital health is something that, like I mentioned at the start, is becoming increasingly important. Um, yeah. How effective do you think industry efforts have been to invest in digital health? Do you think people are seeing it as having the value that it has or do you think there's more to work on there? What do you think? Oh, there's always lots to work on. I think people are definitely realizing the value. There are multiple cases in the media, on LinkedIn, for those of you who are on LinkedIn, which I'm sure there's many, um, there's multiple use cases out there of success stories. But unfortunately, they're isolated cases. There's no connection between this is the project, this is what we were trying to achieve. And there's sometimes a lack of understanding of the wide scale impact that they've had at the, at a locality or regional level and how they've managed to scale up because that's what you're trying to do you're trying to offer solutions that are applicable to your mass markets and your mass populations so i think definitely the um the appetite is there the investment is matching there most companies now have um a chief digital and technology officer and they're trying to incorporate um, digital and digital analytics into their ways of working throughout from a global, regional, local perspective. So companies do have this ambition and everyone is at, you know, some point in that journey. Are they at the end? No. You know, everyone is trying to work out 
how do we do this digital strategy? Some are a lot further ahead and have created a very effective digital strategies. And you can see the red thread of what they're trying to do. Omnichannel, which was a huge buzzword it for was. a couple of years, um, you know, was part of that digital strategy, I'm sure. <laughs> so companies recognize that they need to embrace digital tools, digital ways and digital platforms. I think now they're becoming more comfortable with saying, right, we need to create a strategy. How do we create that strategy? How do we convey that strategy and involve our people in creating it, communicating it and socializing it? And how do we make it live? Mm. I think those are the areas that we really need to work on. And again, it comes back to the appetite of the company, but the individual people were working in that company and the skills. Because I'm sure if we said, okay, go and find me a digital solution and implement it, some people may find that a bit scary because they're not from the tech world, mm. you know? But I think it's what is really fun is to be able to embrace and go and learn about this because there's, as I said, functions within the company that can partner with you so that they can be the technical expertise and you can provide that environmental and that disease expertise and together you could be a really impactful pair. Mm. It seems so exciting. And I know you do hear some cases of people being resistant to digital transformation and going in this direction, fears about AI and all that kind of thing. But from where I'm sitting, it seems overwhelmingly positive, both for companies and for patients. It is overwhelmingly positive if you know what you're playing with. To do that, you need to understand the technology a bit. And to do that, you need to find the right person to help educate you mm. and also work out how can I use this technology to meet my ambition. Once people have more knowledge, they become less scared. They reduce the barriers. I think most of the barriers that we put up sometimes is because of our lack of knowledge, because mm. we're scared of going away from our comfort zones. You know, most of us will never take on a new um, hobby sometimes after we reach a certain age because we put on some barriers in front of us, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I, for one, hate roller skating because I'm so bad at it. <laughs> but I'm sure <laughs> if I had a positive frame, learned a bit more technique and understood how I could stop myself from falling over all the time, mm. I might embrace crucial. it a bit more. <laughs> yeah. Very yeah, crucial. Yeah. And I, I apply that same philosophy to why people in their professional careers would put up barriers. Because you put up barriers when you're scared of the unknown. Mm. But then I think it's on us to go and embrace it. Because ultimately, if we genuinely are here to better patient care, have more effective healthcare systems, which we need because of the increasing prevalence of these chronic diseases, then we owe it to them to go and learn educate ourselves and really partner with people in our companies and in other industries to realize this. It's about demystifying it, I suppose. And yeah, yeah. as you say, sometimes bringing in people from outside of industry. I mean, does that always go down well in your experience, bringing people from the outside inside to kind of, you know, they're not even coming from pharma. They're coming yes. from a completely different industry or profession. Is that valuable when it comes to this kind of context? Of course it's valuable because you learn how other industries have overcome similar problems because ultimately the elements of the problem are usually similar. The outputs will be different. And it's very valuable of understanding from their lens, how did they do it? And a lot of other industries are a lot more effective at change than we are. 
you know, in pharma, we have a lot more regulations, you know, which which are there for patient safety, definitely adhere to those. Um, and I think individuals love learning from others, but they have to bring in the right industry partner to make sure that it's relevant to the audience. You know, we've had lots of talks previously from um, RA, RAF pilots on how to overcome and diminish your barriers, which has been very effective. Because when you're flying a plane and you're doing it at speed, you can't have those doubts coming in. And um, they do have those doubts. And it was really interesting to understand how they overcame those, how they came, overcame their anxieties, how much training they had to put in. And some of this is about re-educating yourself and not being scared of re-educating yourself mm. and being agile enough, that growth mindset, um, you know, which we also hear a lot about. And I think that would help us as well, as well as learning from industry partners. Mm. My previous um, life before I came into pharma was a surgeon, as you know. And a lot of the ways that we enhanced our surgical technique was through simulation. Where did we pick that up from? Pilots, mm. they have to be on the simulators for X number of hours before they can fly. That's where we learned it from. So we, you know, we learned from a different industry. And that was very effective for surgeons and trainees and future medical um, students coming through. So that was an effective uh, way of learning from others. And pharma definitely embraces that from what I've seen. Well, yeah, of course, it will be different in, in different places. But I think, yeah, the you mentioned it there, chief digital officers that are coming into organizations, you know, they've often come from different places and will have a vision and yes. or maybe coming from a completely different sector farmer. But this is their passion. They want to see this forward. And I think that's really fantastic. If you're that person kind of bringing us back to the digital health strategy, you're coming into an organization, doesn't matter where you've come from, you're coming in and you're about to start the digital health strategy for the first time. Maybe there's pockets of innovation going on, but they've said your task is to bring this all together. What do you think the three or four key pillars are of that? What do they need to be focusing on? I think, and this is for me, I'm sure all of your listeners will might have a different lens to this. Uh, but for me, what I would think are important is and this is not in a stepwise fashion at all, but to understand the role that you want of digital health in your company, whether that's related to your portfolio or whether that's related to um, a product, understand where is it that you want to play. Then work out actually which areas do you want to play in? Because you can't do it all straight away. Mm -hmm. You need to work out, is it in preventative medicine? Is it actually creating those robust data sets to integrate with a clinical trial, um, data points to generate real-world evidence? Is that where you want to play? Is it through remote monitoring? Where is it that you want to play? And if you do want to play across all, that requires a substantial, healthy budget. Mm. <laughs> Once you've worked out the role that you want digital health to have in your portfolio or your suite of um, medicines, and the areas that you want to play, you also need to define actually how, which areas and which projects can you choose that are large enough to have discernible differences, right? To really understand impactful change, you have to have large enough projects to be able to show those impactful changes and then back that up with deep analytics to be able to continuously learn 
through your projects, not the end of the project, but through your projects to overcome those barriers. So once you've actually concluded your project, you've measured your markers of success, you've met them, you can scale at pace very comfortably. And that mm. is then leading to your uh, main vision of improving patient outcomes at scale. Mm. And obviously coupled with this, like we've been talking, you need to understand the policies and frameworks of what your um, ecosystem or your healthcare system is trying to achieve because then you can partner with them in a more effective way. Mm -hmm. So I think those are some of the points that I would consider as really important and maybe doing it in phases or waves. You know, wave one, this is what we'll achieve, then wave two, rather than try and bite it all off. And that also helps people become more focused. Step by step, don't bite off too much that you can't chew. Exactly. And have an end goal and always work out who could I partner with? Mm. <laughs> I love that. And Parveen, I'm going to be a bit mean and ask you. So you mentioned a couple of different areas you can focus on. If you had to pick one for you that's the most important, what would you go for? Mm, interesting question. I like them all. It's but like I one. said, <laughs> we have to be focused. For me, I think we are delivering amazing pipelines across the world. And one of the struggling points for most markets is reimbursement, unfortunately, because the applicability of the data and the population in the clinical trial is different from the real world because of various reasons. You have to have inclusion exclusion criteria that you may not apply the same into your clinical practice. And clinicians really want to understand, as well do peers, what is the value that you're bringing in the real world. So I think actually smart data sets that integrate clinical trial data with real world data points to build that evidence package for your market or for your region is where I would want to play a bit more because we have amazing molecules coming through. And if we could do that, we would definitely meet one of our ambitions of getting access and therapies to patients. And making that big impact you were talking about. Exactly, because the work is already being done. Preventative medicine also has a huge future. How we enable preventative medicine, like we alluded at the beginning of the talk, there's a lot of apps out there getting patients to own their own healthcare, taking accountability for their own healthcare, downloading apps, discussing it with their, you know, clinical care groups and saying, how can I utilize this in my care is one way of achieving preventative healthcare. Mm. You know, and I think there's an element of that that we should also sort of encourage through our patient organization groups. You know, the PAGs do an amazing job out there. Let's partner with them and saying, how do we support your um, ambition of not just getting the right treatment to the right patients, but also preventative health? Mm. Very good. Thank so you for asking. You, <laughs> you chose two slightly, but we'll, we'll let you have it. We'll let you have it. Parveen, thank you so much for going over digital health with me, but I'm not quite going to let you go yet. Lots of fantastic insights. I think our listeners will agree. But as we always do, we like to round off every conversation with a bit more of a personal reflection. So I'm going to ask you two questions, really. So first one is, what motivates you to get out of bed in the morning? What's your get up and go? And number two is, what is something that can keep you awake at night? Perhaps a challenge that you're always pondering. You're not exactly sure what the answer is to. Ooh, okay. 
The first one, in terms of a professional sense, what keeps me uh, motivated and getting out of bed every morning is I'm really passionate about being able to work collaboratively with a group to make impactful changes in healthcare. I'm really passionate about that. I think every partner in healthcare has a unique skill sets that they can bring forward and together we can be a really impactful team. And that's what gets me out of bed every day to think that actually I'm working with great minded people with different skill sets to me, but we can work together to achieve great outcomes. That's what gets me out. Plus also some of the exciting projects we are all involved with, that also gets me out of the bed. Partnering with healthcare professionals or healthcare institutions to deliver that change motivates me highly and then seeing the impact when a healthcare professional or an institution says thank you for part working with me to deliver this change that's a huge motivator mm. you know so that's really what gets me out are we there we've discussed it not yet <laughs> there's pockets of success and that's what keeps me up at night is to understand what do I need to do better what skill sets do I need to um, acquire and also what questions do I need to ask differently to be able to facilitate that change? Because I always said, by the age of 65, which I will reach one day, <laughs> and by that age, I don't want to have any regrets. I want to have tried my hardest to have met that objective, you know, my professional objective. Those are the two things that are linked, you know, that um, hopefully answered your question, maybe. A hundred percent. Those are two fantastic things. The power of collaboration and continuous learning, I suppose. Never yes. stopping learning until the age of 65. Maybe then you can have a relax and... <laughs> maybe, maybe. Although, by the way that the retirement age here is working out, we might be working till 75. Possibly, yeah. <laughs> it's not looking too good for us out here, but there we go. Parveen, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been oh, lovely to talk all good things about digital health. Very exciting area. We'll have to have you back on uh, to do Definitely. something with us again. It's been a pleasure having you. And you as well. Thank you for being such a great host. Well, what a great conversation. Parveen's passion for digital health really shone through during that. Do you have a favourite insight from the chat that you can share with us? Oh, there were absolutely loads. As you said, I feel like we covered so many different aspects of digital health, but I did love her answer when I pressed her to say what would be the core area of focus for her within a digital health strategy, and she picked out reimbursement. I think using digital health to enable therapies to get to patients, not just in prevention and all these other ways, but actually use it to further traditional pharma is really fantastic and something we'd all like to see more of. So yeah, I found that bit very insightful. Mm, I'd agree. Hopefully, as you say, we do see more of that in pharma in years to come. Absolutely. And that sadly brings us to the end of our first episode of season six. I hope you've enjoyed listening to that episode. There's plenty more on the way in the coming weeks. Thank you so much to Parveen for joining me. She actually came into the studio as well, which was fantastic. So huge thanks to her. That's right. And be sure to tune in this time next week where we'll be sharing our next episode of the podcast, which will be featuring Nate Cope, who spoke to us about how to create a people-centric pharma organisation. Yes, Nate Cope, who is the COO of Otsuka, will be joining us. So make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out. But until then, it's goodbye from us. See you next time. Mm-hmm.